I'm James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Clifford Heath. This episode was recorded on the 27th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, please visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy! Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. You're well fed up there. Yeah, this is my... Uh, my office i'm in the process of cleaning it so it's uh i'm glad you can't see the desk right now because it's sort of a a nightmare collection of all the stuff that i couldn't get to while i was closing out the year for work so so do you want to go ahead and give yourself a quick introduction well um i'm a difficult guy to introduce because i i've done uh, a lot of different things and i don't i don't want to come across as being full of skype as we say in australia (laughs) um but i've had a i've had an interesting career i've um uh, I was co-founder of Australia's first internet startup, first.com.au, and um, we produced a product which was kind of Visual Basic and Java's bastard child, but it was mm. about six years before either. Um, and that was successful and got, got some traction in, in Europe, especially in banking, and um, that led into a bunch of cryptography stuff because it got put into online banking. Mm. And, uh, but the, ultimately, that ship sank with, uh, with Java because everything's going to be free and wonderful and um, no one's going to ever have to pay for development tools ever again. So we um, re, we pivoted the company to software management, software deployment, mm. and uh, that, that business is still running on. But it's um, in 2007, it was sold and I, I took a step aside from it mm. because I'd seen a lot of the way enterprise software was being built and um, uh, realized that we needed a fundamental shift in, in the way we think about designing and writing software and uh, so, and that fact-based modeling was the my belief was, was the way to tackle that and uh, so I did a long project in um, constructing a, a, um, a query language which is a natural language that integrates mathematical logic so it's if you like it a, a naturalish language representation um, of mathematical logic uh, so it's natural enough that you can read it without being trained but it's formal enough that you can parse it without ambiguity with a machine, with a computer. Oh, interesting. So um, a, a controlled natural language. Uh, what that's was the name the of that project? That was, that was a constellation query language. The project okay. was um, originally called Active Facts, which is a bit of a dig at Active Record, a Rails thing at the time. Mm. Um, the idea being fact, fact orientation begins with the sorts of things people say to each other. And they logically analyze them to say what is actually what are the facts that that, that we're communicating over, um, and and can we generalize that to types of facts? So anything we can say is something we, you know, in, in the business anything that's relevant to the business is something we have a way of saying, um, which means we can look at language and use that to analyze the um, the structure of the facts that make up the information that's relevant to a business. So rather than traditional approaches to database design, this is actually a, a um, a formal uh, approach with a linguistic um, introduction. Yeah, I know a lot of businesses are are definitely after that of how can they extend the benefits of computer-based systems to people who may not be classical programmers or people who only use computers as part of their job. So being able to make that more accessible and predictable and scriptable so that they can have the people who have the domain knowledge being able to extend that ability has been I think that's always been one of those aims of businesses trying to use more computers more effectively. I think the biggest deceit uh, that I see in the IT industry is that when I describe a data structure, you'll know what I mean by it. Mm. Um, 
it, it, it seems, um, data structures typically seem lucid at surface level, um, but this, the, the actual structure of our, of our meaning, of meaning in our minds is so much richer and more complex than anything that's easy to systematize on a computer. Mm. And, um, and so, so when, I say, when I say a thing, it's entirely clear to me and it's entirely clear to you, but our meaning is different. And it's very hard to get get over that barrier, which is, and that's what fact-based modeling is trying to do: is to many many bugs in software actually come about because I set up the software to work a certain way because it was my understanding of a problem at a time, and I build data structures and I, and I start writing algorithms, and then I discover a complexity that that, and now I'm looking for a minimum pass to rework what I did before, mm. instead of going back to the beginning and saying what what have I done wrong? Um, in other words, what have I relied on? from my previous wrong understanding, which is now going to trip me up further on. And so we get bugs because we, we change our interpretation of, uh, of the, uh, the stored data. We change our in interpretation of the scenario um, during the development of a project. And, um, and so techniques like fact-based modeling allow you to uh, get at the nub of um, the meaning of things, the structure of the problem, um, before you get heavily committed to code. And, mm. and uh, what you wind up with is structures that communicate clearly to the whole team what they're about. You know, I've had people say to me, I've never seen a database design that I could, I could look at and know exactly what it was talking about before, but this one does that for me. And so even, even quite junior people have been able to, most of the work we do in, in writing programs is not work, it's not forward work, it's rework. 90% of the work we do is rework. Mm. And people don't realize that, but they, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if, you can, if you can reduce the rework, by having a clearer picture of where you want to get to, um, then you then you radically accelerate your software development, and you don't get as many bugs because you understand where you're trying to get to, and each part of the work you're working on stands alone, in in a conceptual framework which which fits the big picture. You can, you can work at the small scale and the large scale. Yeah, I see this even not just in data modeling and things like that. Um, so I do a fair amount of software consulting and and. Even though Ferris as a company is very focused on Rust, the programming language, if if for most of the teams that I work on, if there was one thing that I could do that has the highest impact is usually to look at how they have requirements tracking and, and what their team's understanding of the requirements is. Because like you said, there's usually kind of a, uh, when you're solving any problem, whether that's data-driven or, or kind of solution-driven, the, the important part is understanding what problem your system is trying to solve and how your system tries to solve that problem and uh for most of the most of the things that i work with with companies is is they very typically either had some requirements or even started without requirements and said hey we're going to do some experimentations and and get further into the process but not having a kind of common understanding on all the software developers or even the non-software developers the project managers or electrical engineers or systems and modeling type folk is is having a, a shared understanding of of what the actual problems you're trying to tackle are. So I can definitely understand uh, when you're looking at modeling data or understanding data, being able to have a common understanding of, of what you're trying to do across the entire team and how you're trying to do that could be really important. And I've seen people either try and attack that from, like you said, trying to, trying to put that in after the fact and trying to rework existing mm -hmm. systems and setups and try to do that. And it's always a really painful and challenging thing to do because like you said, a lot of the times the, the systems you've built are built on certain preconceptions, whether that was what data structures you used or, or what 
corners you did round out or things like that is that trying to undo those or work around those previous assumptions can be really painful and tedious and introduce a lot of complexity and room for bugs because there's you know you're trying to paper over fundamental challenges and things like that so that's absolutely right that's absolutely right i don't and, really uh, have any better solutions other than uh, my approach to this these days has been kind of time boxing and like make that first stab where you can where you can get your hands into the problem and really understand deeper than a surface level and then just admit you're going to throw away the first one but you time box that so you you go okay well maybe this is going to be the right one but i'm okay with it not being the right one and when you have a little bit more domain expertise isn't the right word but like depth into the specific problem that you're trying to challenge that's when you turn around and so with with a lot of companies i do write a bit of code and, and do a bit of work to get deeper into the problem. And then you write the requirements and like not day zero when you have no idea the actual complexities of, but you get like, you jump in the pool first, but you're fine that everything's going to be wrong. And then you get out. Yeah, to, well, okay. that's, that, that's, that's a, that's a typical response. Uh, it's a typical response to the industry. In fact, I mean, that's, that's essentially what we call agile, right? It's, um, yeah. it's saying we're going to miscommunicate over requirements so let's just um, start, not get too far down the track, and then we'll stop and see if we seem to be heading in the right direction and, and, and adjust. So instead of trying to fix the problem of miscommunication, we're trying to minimize the cycle of miscommunication to minimize the impact of miscommunication. But we're not actually, to me, um, I mean, I, I, I totally espouse agile uh, practices, but, but not for the reasons that they're traditionally espoused. Um, we we do need to have a discovery process in all software, um, but the, uh, the uh, agile to me in many cases seems to be um, it reflects giving up on the idea of communication. I was going to say, in other words, I was going to say that's actually my my preferred is actually somewhere. I don't know, not strongly in either camp of waterfall. So I, I come from a safety critical background. So those industries tend to be very waterfall driven. And I've also worked in AO IoT companies and things like that. And those companies tend to be very agile or at least agile influenced, depending on their interpretation of agile or scrum and things like that. And uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Like doing that first stab where you say it's okay that we haven't planned everything. But then I, I personally actually really like turning around and not planning everything, but planning at least the big stroke pictures. I, I find that especially like more modern companies, like you said, agile for a lot of companies is about giving up on planning. And you say, you know, we'll figure it out as we go. But I think there's actually a benefit of doing somewhere in the middle of that is, is you're okay if the plan changes, but you always need to have a plan. And that's somewhere between agile and waterfall. And maybe there's a name for this in practice, but like, I like having requirements and thinking out the problems ahead of time, but also there's no there's nothing sacred about the plan. You know, it can change based on new facts and it's always good to be updating that, but to be conscious about updating that and, and say like, you know, that's why I tend to really push home on requirements and things like that because it tends to be like, you know, everyone needs to know where they're going and how they're getting there, but it's okay if that plan changes based on new facts and things like that. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how far, maybe we should push into this a bit further because I, I've got a lot of responses to all this and okay. and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to hold back because I could go on for more than uh, <laughs> uh, more more sessions than you've got time for, <laughs> not just one hour, um, but but essentially, um, so the avoidance of natural language um, and natural language communication over requirements comes back to 
um, the wooliness, supposedly, of natural language. Mm. But in fact, everything that, every, that a business needs to say to its to uh, members in the business, operators in the business need to say to each other is expressed, can be expressed in natural language. And anyone that's experienced, for example, in insurance knows the language that knows when, that, when I say a certain thing, that they know what that means because they're experienced in the business. And, and we have no way of bottling um, that, um, that business's use of language until, unless we look at one of the fact-based modeling approaches like object role modeling or what my language is called, the constellation query language, um, actually enables you to uh, take um, natural language sentences and say, here is the underlying factual structure of that. Here is a canonical way in English or in German or in French, or I've got multiple language versions of it, uh, to be able to express those same facts in a mathematically formal way, but still using natural language sentences. And so, and, and using that, you can build up um, a formal picture, formal meaning it's not subject to one person's interpretation or another because it actually has a, a mathematical structure. It can only mean what it means. The words are your cue to your, if you like, your life experience, your mental model of what the problem is being described. The words actually don't matter. The structure of the thing can be discussed and agreed ahead of time. And you can do that 20 times faster than you can write code. And, and it's not just about, people think that modeling is just about databases, but in reality is uh, my, my compiler for CQL, the entire back end of that is written in CQL. In other words, it's um, the, everything that you can say in CQL is modeled in the meta model, which has expressed itself in CQL. Mm. And I generate code from that, and that becomes my intermediate representation uh, between the compiler and the generators. Um, the meta model creates an in-memory database um, which is, the, which is the output of the compiler. The compilation process populates this database and then the generators look at it and say, oh, I see you're talking about this. Well, we can go and build a scheme that looks like that or we can go and generate code that does these things. Um, so it's not, just about, it's not just about database, it's about any kind of semantic information base. Um, and when you take it in elementary facts, and there's a whole definition behind what I mean by an elementary fact, but when you take, when you break, sentences down until they until each sentence says one thing and only one thing and it can't be broken down further without saying that thing right that's what elementary is at its heart um, then and you give it this and you give it constraints over the elementary facts like each person has at most one uh, family name um, at any time or um, you know whatever um, car can only be driven by one driver at a time so these constraints uniqueness constraints are the most common ones but and they're the ones that give structure. Then the software can look at this thing as a description of possibility. So a schema is a description of possible a possible world. Mm. And and any piece of software, if I walk up to a computer and I want to play with a piece of software, I I have some something in my head that tells me I think I know what this thing remembers from last time I was doing. I think I know the kinds of things it's capable of doing. So I'm talking about meta models. I'm talking about stored data. And I know the structure of that. Otherwise, I couldn't work with it. So learning a piece of software means learning the kinds of scenarios it can represent and how it goes about representing them. And, and so it's not just about databases. Every bit of software you use, whether it be a, a, an Android app on your phone, whether it be a, an IoT sensor, um, it has some internal uh, knowledge structure which can be represented in a, in a, in a, in a, in a model 
And that model can be expressed in many different ways. One of those ways I, I've made available is um, is uh, apparently natural language, I say apparently natural language um, sentences. Uh, and from those, I can also compile them and generate other representations. So I can generate XML structure, uh, XSDs, and you know, I can generate SQL schemas and stuff. Uh, I can generate um, um, the raw schemas for JSON to go into an HTML layout. So there's lots of different kinds of representation of the same the same semantic information, but having a single model that describes information at rest or in flight um, into which every fact must fit. In other words, every variable in every program has some semantic role that links up with other facts. Otherwise, it wouldn't be part of that program. And, and all these things can it. be modeled. Before we get too far from it, I definitely want to, you said definitely something really important that I'd be interested in hearing more about. Uh, you mentioned uh, context to the, the language, and that's definitely something I've seen in practice of one of the, and, and definitely the uh, atomicity of, of these statements and things like that. That's one of those big things that we got really big into when working in avionics is that there is a, a pattern of how you write your requirements so that there is a, like you have each requirement that has essentially one shall. So you're, you're only stating one requirement in each yeah, label totally. requirement. So you're not saying and this and this and this, because those should be individual atomic statements and things like That's that. And there's right. definitely a, a pattern to the grammar of how you state these requirements and things like that. And I have noticed that different companies and different industries have different patterns. Like they'll usually be consistent within the company or sometimes even vaguely consistent across the industry. So avionics or one company in, that produces avionics may have a certain you know, pattern that they use. And you definitely aim for that because you want your requirements to not look like they were written by any uh, that was actually one of our goals, both when we were writing code and writing requirements is when you look at that requirement or when you look at that chunk of code, you should not be able to tell who wrote that code or who wrote that requirement because it should mm -hmm. look like it has, you know, people in marketing or advertisement talk about this as like voice of the company or something like that, that it should be, it should look consistent as yeah, if it was one entity right. writing these. And I wonder no, how you handle that between like different industries, because I imagine for example, the healthcare industry and the automotive industry and the avionics industry have different patterns or contexts or grammar that they use. They use it consistently, but they're not equivalent to each other's grammars or context or, or specifications and things like that. Okay, uh, two responses to that, a short one and a long one. The, the, the short one is in the constellation query language, um, the sentence structures that are possible are more open. It will accept language which is not... Um, it doesn't actually understand English, right? Mm -hmm. It understands conjunctions like and, uh, and and it, it you can't use the word and inside a noun. For example, the the if you want the noun command and control in a military system, you can't use the word and in there because and is a conjunction and that you breaks clauses and apart. Control is one unit. And so when I see and, I say that's the end of the previous clause and start of a new clause, and I'll pass those two clauses separately, or I'll match those two clauses separately. So in that respect, it's not natural language because uh, we can figure that out when we listen to someone speaking, but the computer can't figure that out. So I've got some restrictions, some limitations on, on what natural language mm -hmm. would be accepted. But so those rules apply in CQL, but that th those are not the rules of, if I'm writing a model for insurance industry, those are not the rules of insurance. Those are the rules of writing languages, writing statements in CQL. As far as insurance is concerned, you can write whatever you like in whatever language you like and and as long as you use it consistently it'll it'll match up 
and, and the certain phrases that are key. For example, uh, each person, each uh, each vehicle is identified by its by its VIN. Is identified by is a key phrase in CQL. Hmm. If I say each blah is identified by, that means I'm now producing a new. Um, I'm now asserting the existence of a new type of object called blah. And here is the identification pattern for one of those things. So there's certain phrases that are mandatory. Okay, that's the short answer. The longer answer is I, I've been interacting for uh, over a decade now with the European Space Agency, and they obviously have extensive, um, because they're, they're highly, um, I mean, the, the procurement contracts spread across you know, dozens of, of um, top-level companies and hundreds of smaller ones. And, uh, and there's a big tree of, of back-to-back um, contracts which are defined in interface control documents. And these interface control documents have to be written in a standardized language so that people know what they're providing and what, you know, when, the, when the eventual module is delivered, whether it be software or hardware, it's got to be able to be bolted in and just work. And so these interface control documents define these interfaces between uh, hardware or software interfaces. And they have a whole, they have a whole multi-hundred page document describing the language to be used in describing interface control document specifications. Yeah. Well, um, in the fact-based modeling world, we say, well, if we can have such a regularized set of rules, and given that these things are only constructing a model of what the um, delivered system will, will look like, why can't we use a modeling language to do that? And we can verify and generate from it in many different ways, including generating interface control documents. And, and a few years ago, uh, my contact there actually achieved exactly that. Mm. The um, the overall standard for um, uh, for defining the content of messages to be sent across computerized information exchange interfaces of whatever form, whether they be radio or, or you know or CAN bus or whatever, uh, any interface to be sent across any any interface boundary is defined according to a an ICD, mm. which is subordinate to an overriding ICD. So in other words, there is a standard for ICDs. That overriding standard for ICD is a 650-page document of which over 500 pages was machine-generated from a model. Hmm. So there's a set of 30 diagrams which contain in, in object role modeling, which which are in a tool called Norma, which is a Visual Studio plugin. It's open source. Um, and, and from this model, which defines the structure of messaging um, and, the, and the structure of, a, of an information base over which you can send messages, about which you can just send messages. This, uh, those diagrams were generated into 500 pages of high-quality uh, PDF text, written, of course, according to the standards of the ICD. So the, the, the text gets literally copy-pasted directly into the overall ICD, which contains front, front matter and back matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it forms the body of the interface control document, which determines all of the telecommand and... and uh, uh, all of the, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the title of the document right now. Sorry. Um, no worries. Essentially, yeah. Essentially, all of the, um, all of the up and down control messages must be defined according to this telecommand process. And, uh, and, and the, the overarching document for that is machine generated. And so uh, we, we don't need to use English as our primary input form. But it's a way in for thinking about things. When I start to talk to you about, hey, let's build a gadget to do this, I'm going to use English to do it because I can't point to any model that we already agree on. 
Yeah. And uh, and when we start, as we talk more, we'll agree on what the terms mean and what the thing, what 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 the related items are, and um, what are the facts of the matter, if you like. And and out of that, we come to a shared understanding, which enables us to go away and build software together. Well, all I'm really saying is, let's turn that communication into a model in a in a in a suitable modeling language. And then we can generate most of the code. We don't need to go away and have misinterpretations as to what the language actually meant, because we're using the same generated code, and and we, we've got we've got um, formally verifiable, and this actually goes into formal verification as in the mathematical sense, because tools like TLA plus uh, are doing amazing things with um, verifying algorithms, temporal logic, in in parallel systems. Um, but even uh, earlier tools like Alloy, which is, I mean, Alloy is basically the same thing as a fact-based model, right? It's, it's CQL is similar in power, but it's expressed in natural language rather than mathematical language. Um, so these systems allow you to find contradictions uh, where your model is not self-consistent, which is marvelous. So there's a continuity here between the very soft, fluffy initial discussions, the words we use, and the really hard mathematical analysis of the model to find errors in algorithms and, and errors in structures. Uh, Do you see that uh, as being more useful for generation or verification? Because I know that there's uh, usually two approaches to, to well, there's a lot of different approaches, but w w listening to you talk just now, I mean, the you mentioned two major things, which were generation of these this code. So rather than one of the, one of the trite internet uh, phrases is there there's the best way we found of unambiguously specifying the behavior that a computer should follow is is just called code uh, in that, <laughs> you know, we are trying to specify what the behavior unambiguously is possible of this of this system should be. And and many people see that code as being the most unambiguous way of doing that. But when you have the ability to specify models using these tools, whether it's TLA plus or or any other fact based modeling or things like that, do you see the primary usefulness of these systems being generation of that code. So rather than having a human trying to encode this contextual logic that they understand into the, the working systems that they're using, rather focus on generation of that ability or the opposite side of that, of, of still allowing the humans to specify this using code in the way that they'd like, but being able to verify at the end of the day that the the different trade-offs that they've made in building the system, whether they're they're focusing more on throughput or latency or you know whatever trade-offs they're considering when they're writing this code that might be harder to encode into a, a model-based system to still be able to verify at the end of the day that these systems are compliant with the initial model or, or uh, the working understanding that the people have who are designing these systems. Yeah, sure. So firstly, um, TLA Plus and, and Alloy and tools like that uh, focus on verification. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any work to generate code from them, and that's a problem. Uh, we need to integrate the tools so that the same language does all the things. And and that, and that is what I'm pushing towards with the fact-based modeling approach. In fact, what, one of the things I'd like to do with CQL is to, is to be able to encode the things that you can say in TLA as an integral part of a CQL model. So you can generate code from it, but you can also run a verifier over it. Now. That said, verification is only possible over problems of limited scope because the, mm. the combinatorial uh, expansion of, of uh, you know, a model expresses a world of possibilities and those worlds get big really quickly. And uh, we don't have infinite compute time to run verification. 
and we don't have quantum computers that can parallel explore all possible paths. And so verification is typically being applied over a limited subset of an overall system. Okay, that said, people jump to, and I, I, I don't like using the word code. Um, okay. The reason, the reason, I, I actually like code, but the way people use code, they think when we, when we say we need to teach the kids to code, they're talking about introducing 10-year-olds to the idea of, of algorithms, of step-by-step -step things, of achieving result by starting thinking about how a thing is done step-by-step. -step. You know what? Most of the world is not algorithmic. It's actually structural. And if you can understand the structure of the world, the algorithms are obvious. So um, Alloy CQL is focused pr primarily on what is the structure of the world, as in what is the possible, what, are the, what is the limit of the possible scenarios this software will ever encounter? If we can describe uh, in, in a static state every possible scenario, then, uh, then all the transient stuff is just changing from one possible scenario to the next possible scenario. That is to say, it's a set of transactions. When it comes to verification, what I prefer to do is to, is to uh, focus first of all on here is the static description of all possible worlds. In other words, here is a description that describes any situation we'll ever have to deal with. And, and, and then out of that, here are, the, here are the atomic steps, the transactions by which, that, by which our knowledge of that world changes. Then you start looking at things like uh, temporal uh, analyzers. You can say, we've got some rules in this world. Is it possible that any sequence of transactions is sufficiently unchecked that if you do a certain sequence of transactions, you reach a point where you violate one of the rules that you laid down at the start? And that's, that's really all TLA is doing, is it's saying, can you reach a dead end state? That's the liveness checking in TLA. Or, or can you reach a contradictory state where one of the invariants of the, of the world are violated? And that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. It's very powerful, particularly when you've got distributed algorithms because you've got, you've got transactions stepping past each other with partial work. Yeah. But if you actually have a transactional system, then you'd never have partial work. You see what I'm saying? You can never see yeah. a part complete transaction. So, and this is why, you know, Microsoft blew a few billion dollars a couple of years back on, on trying to produce software transactional memory. And essentially, um, when I compile a fact-based model to an in-memory database, what I call a constellation, that actually supports a transactional, transactional programming at the, at the memory level, at the RAM level, on individual facts. So it's like an OO database that sits in memory and and everything is guaranteed self-consistent. It, it doesn't do the transactional locking. So multi-threaded use is still is still outside the bounds of what that does. But it guarantees that uh, that if I if I add something to this thing over there, then it automatically appears in that collection over there. And you, and you can never see a state where one of those things is true and not the other one, because they happen for you. It's built into the model. Yeah, it that, reduces the that, scope. Instead of everyone kind of building their own version of that that is aiming to achieve that, it's it's providing it either at the hardware or the operating system or the runtime sort of level, correct? Right. So you, you, you've really got semantic memory. So if I say, if I've got a, a person in memory and I've got a, a, a list of cars in memory and I say, this person owns this car and now this person buys a new car, the owner of that car changes at the same time as the list of cars that person owns changes. Yeah. Those things are not separable things. And, and the result of that is that your, your need for this parallel overlapping analysis like TLA does is much less. Now, the need to actually um, make those transactions atomic, that's still, that's still you know, actually, actually software transactional memory in that sense, is still 
a difficult problem. Yeah. Um, because what do you do when you get deadlocks? Now the software can't go forwards, it can't go back, and you've got no, you may have no way of recovering. So you know, the implementations of that are still difficult, but but the analysis problem becomes enormously simpler if you don't think about things in terms of I change this variable to that, I change that variable to this, which is which is, and that's what we're teaching kids when we're teaching them the code. We're saying do this step, then do this step, then do this step, then do this step, and the end result will be this behavior. Well. How do you know it's going to get that behavior? It, particularly when you get to parallel algorithms, you just can't you just can't use intuition anymore. Do you see that uh, as being as useful for sequential learning? So, for example, like teaching kids to program at least to begin with is is a, a bit about teaching them the domain and the tools that they will use. So, for example, syntax and and how to think about these items and things like that. Do you see that as being a useful step, but missing the follow through? You know what I mean of of Yes, we start with more procedural code and we start about thinking about that, but we're missing the follow through of finalizing that. Because I definitely agree with you. When I think of problem solving, there's usually two things that I think of. I think of my data and my data models. So usually thinking with types and things about that, which matches the schemas and limitations of models of what data can I have or what is valid and what isn't valid and how do I do that? And then state machines of how do I have transitions of data or how do I have transitions of state? And usually when I'm solving problems, I'm thinking usually in one or both of those two models, which is, am I thinking about my data and where it's going and how it's flowing? Or am I thinking about state machines and how things are transacting and, and how things can progress sequentially, either in parallel or or in you know a, a linear path of how they can have these combinations of state? Is Is that just missing the follow through of, okay, we've taught you how to crawl and then walk but we never really taught you how to run we just said okay crawling and walking is enough go be as fast however you can figure out to be fast or things like that or do you think that it's a fundamental misapproach of of how we're teaching the concepts and and fundamental items to to students or children or things like that we should be teaching them about schemas and modeling and and that or when, when you say you know we're miss we're mis teaching students mm -hmm. is that not a lack of follow, follow through or a lack of what we think about of the fundamental building blocks. Well, yeah, and Niklas Wirt once humorously said that anyone taught first in, in basic can, can never be taught to program. And, and there is a bit of that truth in this, in that when you start to think of things, when you, when you first approach to making a computer do something is to start thinking about procedures, you're already off on the wrong foot. Uh, but it's the only foot we know where to start on because um, the problem is actually deeper than, you know, even the adults trying to teach this stuff don't have the right perspectives to start with typically. And, and the problem goes back into human language. So we're very good at talking about concrete situations. So I can say, um, uh, slow down, I can't keep up. I've got, a, I've got a, my ankles, I've, I've sprained my ankle. I can't keep up with the group. Please slow down. There's a concrete situation I'm talking about. I can say, don't touch the stove, the stove is hot, it'll burn you. That's a concrete situation. Not an actual situation. You haven't actually touched the stove yet, but it's a concrete situation. What we're not very good at is communicating non-concrete, non-actual. Human language has never had a need to do that, and it hasn't evolved good structures for talking about non-concrete, non-actual situations, but possible situations. That is to say... Like, don't harm yourself or something. The, like idea, the idea of something being hot and the idea that, that heat can cause harm... And that you know that, that 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 a burn hurts, and will stop you from the other things you want to do. Those are those those are general ideas, 
which are not concrete situations. They're, they're general ideas. And so human language is very poor at saying for some car and for some person, it's possible that that person owns that car. Now, that's a very mathematically precise statement, but my God, how ugly is that sentence, <laughs> right? And it's ugly because it's not the kind of thing we need to be able to say in normal life. It's, it's not an evolved feature of language to be able to talk in those sort of general terms. And yet that's precisely what we're doing when we're designing software. That is all we're doing when we're designing software. We're saying, what are the possible situations? How are we going to name those possible situations? And now when our software later encounters those situations, how's it going to respond? So the response is where we come to code. That's where we come to process. But, but you can't think about code until you first understand the realm of possibility. And, and, and that is the realm of modeling. Until you have a shared model. Now, we think that, we think that the idea of a person owning a car is, is a natural idea, and I don't need to describe that to you. And so we gloss over it. And because our language, uh, our day-to-day life doesn't call into need, into, it doesn't, doesn't call for the need to be able to communicate things like that, you know, framework, concept, conceptual framework ideas. We, we pick them up as children incidentally when we're learning language, but we don't necessarily get a precise definition that, that, mat, that matches between two people. Each, every person's set of connotations for anything is different. So if I ask, if I go to 10 people and say, tell me five things about the sea, you know, one person's a fisherman, they'll tell you there's fish in the sea. One person's a surfer, they'll tell you there's waves on the sea. One person's a sailor, they'll tell you the wind blows across the sea. Uh, everyone will tell you the sea is wet. Some of them, most of them will tell you it's salty. But the point is you're not going to get 50 different things and you're not going to get 10 things. You're going to get things that are different from everyone's perspective. And depending on what you've been doing recently, you'll have a different response to that question. You know, if you went surfing yesterday and said, tell me about the sea, you'll tell me how the waves were. If you went sailing yesterday, you'll, you know, you'll tell me how the wind was blowing over the sea, which direction it was coming from. So uh, context is everything in interpreting language. Uh, but how do we create context? How do we, you know, when we're designing software, we're designing software in an abstract context with, with non-actual scenarios. So they're, they're, they're not concrete. There may be concrete scenarios, but th- those are the individual things. When we go to the abstraction over all, all the possible concrete scenarios, and they're not actual because we don't, have, we don't have examples. And this is why things like paper prototyping help a lot because I can suddenly say, I can, I can put myself in the situation of using this piece of software. I yeah. can see the screen. I say, I, I'm going to push that button first. I know what I'm going to do because the software, if it communicates to me, gives me an idea where to start. But when we're designing new software, we've got nowhere to start. And starting with, starting with pr- procedures is the wrong place to start. And teaching kids to start thinking procedurally is the wrong place to start. We need to start thinking structurally. You what is the structure of the problem? And, and things like that of, of kids implicitly pick these things up like the, well, sometimes not even implicitly, that, that things are hot and if they touch hot things, that it will burn them. Some kids learn that actively. And I'm sure I learned that actively <laughs> at some point personally. But I mean, is, is teaching kids about or even you know new students who may not even be children people who are just new to programming teaching is teaching them procedural logic just the easiest thing that we can put in their hands and that we hope that they start picking up these context uh contextual items over time is that just one of those things where 
we don't know how to teach them that the stove is hot. All we can do is, you know, give them hands and let them wander around until they burn their hands or start seeing, you know, other experiences where they see someone else burn their hands or see other people avoid the stove. Cause I know children are really good at that of, you know, once they see things, they contextualize it and they're, they're able to follow along with it. Even if they're never the ones that burn their own hand, if they see someone else burn their hands or if they see other people avoiding the stove when it's hot, that they, they learn these things indirectly. Is, is that one of those things that we need to turn around at some point and go, okay, here is, here is the, the reason why you've, you've been taught to avoid these things or why we, you've taught to do certain things where that, or, or even just more simply, if, if we shouldn't be teaching them procedural logic, what should we be teaching them as, as fundamental concepts? Well, firstly, the people teaching them are trying to give them an idea what a computer is capable of doing. Mm-hmm. So the first introduction to a computer is, well, what do computers do? Well, they process things. In other words, they execute procedures. And so if you're going to get a computer to do something, you've got to know what it's capable of doing first. And so we try to give them exposure to procedures because that gives them some insight into what the computer is capable of doing and how it goes about doing things. Mm. But we're not teaching them about how people want to think about and interact with software. We're teaching them about what the computer is capable of doing in response to that, which is able to create those experiences. So we need to teach first about the kind of experiences that uh, of using a software. In other words, we should be trying to teach user experience. Hmm. What does a person want to see? What's in their head when they, when they walk up to the computer for the first time wanting to achieve a certain task? If we say, let's talk about what's in the person's head, what do they imagine as computers? How do they imagine the computer's going to deal with solving this problem? What are they going to expect to see? How are they going to know that what they see reflects a path to a solution for getting a job done. So this is structural thinking. This is not procedural thinking. Hmm. It's it's uh, it's where do you start looking at the thing? But you know, teachers are saying, well, the kids need to learn to code. Uh, the way to do that is to, and what, what they think that means is they need to teach computers to do things. So the first thing you got to do is to work out what a computer is capable of doing. And computers don't do things in terms of process, so they start by teaching process, and that's the wrong approach. Software is not soft because we, we don't build it soft. We build it hard. In other words, we, we build in sets of processes that are very difficult to rearrange without introducing bugs. And all of our focus on, on uh, most of the, the last few decades of work in, 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 in the software world has actually made software harder and harder. I don't mean more difficult. I mean it's made it less soft. We're making software less and less soft because we've got, we've got infinite layers. If you look at the way HTML was when it was first born and the, and the way web development works now, the number of things you have to know to be able to build a web application now is just astronomical. And we're making software. And, and, and when you build all those things, everything works together in synergy with everything else and you get software. And it's, it's a miracle because you've got 47 different layers and all these different technologies involved and if you change any one of them, the whole thing stops working. And How and this is what I mean by is, stop- is the total complexity of the the whole system. Because there's, I mean, there's a whole uh, there's a GitHub repo. I forget its name, but it's it's just called something like "What happens when you load a web page?" And it tries <laughs> to, it tries to increasingly difficultly, like deeply and deeply, all the way down to the physics layer of h- how does loading that web page work of you know, how does the request go out? How does the network layer work? How does the response from the server look? How does the parsing of the HTML or the CSS and the JavaScript and things like that is it, if we are able to formally specify all of those components, 
you know, the network layer, the physics layer, the communication layer, you know, all seven layers of the OSI model and the browser's rendering model and how the the DOM works in a browser and how those things, I mean, th those are definitely, a, a, I, I admit those are sufficiently complex things because there's just loading that one page is only, a, you know, lighting up a very small subset of the total capability of all of those systems that you're traversing across. But if you were to specify the model for those, would those necessarily be more reasonable to understand for one human? If I had generated module models for everything down to the physics layer of how the electrons move across the fiber optic or the electrical lines and things like that of, of when I traverse from analog to digital, would that make it any easier for one person to be able to understand all of those things? Or is this just a, a necessary split that we've reached a layer of complexity, which is useful to us because we are operate you know we're only lighting up one small part of each of those domains that we're traversing across that it's still probably going to require specialization of different people who are specialized at the network layer or the web page layer or the browser level or things like that would would some way of modeling in those would that actually do you think make that easier is this just when you have to traverse those nine layers it would make it more easy and consistent for you to be able to traverse those nine layers as you or thousands of layers as you have to traverse across them I, I'm not even sure how to begin answering that question. Well, the thing is, we've 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 created this mountain of technology on top of on top of bits and bytes. In other words, the underlying data has no type, and we've created languages around these things, and uh, and uh, expectations around algorithms expected for processing those languages. And some of the languages are are more structural oriented. In HTML, originally was a, was a tag oriented thing. Now it's more strictly nested than it was, but the parse has always parsed it as, as if it was nested, hierarchical, but you didn't actually have to use a closing list item, for example, for an opening list list item uh, in HTML, the way it was in the in the early years, um, you know, when the internet was in short trousers, as I like to say. So we never really, we never really, we, you know, HTML started as a byte stream. And in the byte stream, you put some tag markers and those tag markers are instructions to some processing engine, which you're supposed to understand how it works, to do something and to reconstruct some sort of hierarchy. In other words, the HTML was not intrinsically hierarchical. It was intrinsically a byte stream. It was interpreted as being uh, interpreted into being a hierarchy or interpreted into a, into a two-dimensional representation on a screen. So where if we had a structural approach, we wouldn't have started with bits and bytes, or we would have used those bits and bytes to encode higher level structures. And so the structural approach, as opposed to a, um, an algorithmic approach, is the algorithm sees this tag and it does this thing, would have, you would have yielded an entirely different technology stack. I, I, I'd like to see a world where we don't have file systems anymore. We have object systems, right? The, the very idea of a file system at its heart is broken because it means you need some algorithm to interpret the contents of any file. And the, and the meaning of that series of bytes is dependent on the software that you apply to apply to it. And yeah, it's a great it's a great underlying thing because information starts in bytes in bits and bytes. But the structure of the world is not bits and bytes. The structure of the world is things. And uh, we need a, we need to begin again with re-encoding our, our expectations for data mm. to reflect the structure of things. And when we have structures, then we can have software that says, when you see this kind of structure, you can do that kind of man manipulation on it. And now software is soft because it doesn't know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't think in terms of processing of a series of bytes. It, it thinks in, ter in terms of matching and transforming a structure. 
And that's an entirely different approach to software. That would actually produce software that is really soft in the sense of being adaptable to anything that matches the structure. Uh, there's, there's been some wonderful technology done this part, but most of it's stayed in the, world, in, the, in the realm of academia. You know, languages like TXL, which do this for languages described by a formal grammar and allow you to transform from uh, one input source to an output source and, and guarantee that at every stage in trans- transformation, you have a, a tree structure that reflects or that can be, that can be re-emitted in correct grammatical form according to the rules of the grammar that you're transforming within. Fascinating technology, difficult to use because I want to transform from one grammar to another grammar. And to do that, I've got to unify the two grammars. But my point is that these tools are, are tools for structural thinking, not, for, not so much for procedural thinking. And uh, I'd like to see some thought being given to go right back to the beginning of, of, of data. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm reflecting on this because I was, I was more recently thinking of things like, one of the th- those things is that these systems are non-static and, and they certainly need to evolve over time. And, and one of the things that I've seen is typically there's usually a pushback on, and whether it's just because people don't know how to approach this or whether they have a need for speed, as you will, of, of need for iteration speed and things like that. You look at systems that were designed to be strongly typed or strongly hierarchical and things like that. And there's usually some kind of pushback eventually if these systems live long enough. So the one that comes to my mind right now is Bluetooth, where there is this idea of of characteristics and essentially endpoints that have a schema that are associated with them. And the Bluetooth spec spends a lot of time talking about how you define a heart rate monitor or a temperature sensor and things like that. But then you have like the backdoor that everyone actually uses when everyone ships an actual Bluetooth device, they use like a an opaque binary endpoint, which is just a byte sync in source. And you know their their embedded device sends some opaque byte stream that only their proprietary application knows how to parse. And then their proprietary application just sends it and they either use something like Nordic serial point endpoint where they're just using an actual serial port interface or they just use uh, you know an opaque set of proprietary endpoints and things like that where it makes it difficult to interwork with this. And I've definitely dealt with this in IoT where everyone in IoT loves the idea of a schema and that's how you get portability behind devices and things like that because everyone has a schema and you can have interoperability and you don't need to do that and actually one company i worked at was working very hard to try and bolt that on afterwards of of providing a schema and normalization that you could use so that you could have interconnection of devices and be able to do that so you're not thinking about talking to x company's temperature sensor or y company's temperature sensor or z company's temperature sensor but rather abstract over that but i've seen always a pushback because everyone goes, well, I want that, but I want, but also my special thing and my special thing and things like that. And is, is that one of those just pendulums back swinging back and forth in industry of everyone goes from very weakly type languages with no schemas and no schema on their data and things like that to, to much more strongly type languages and strongly schema data and things like that of just, this is one of those industry tick, tick and talk back and forth things. Or is this one of those things that, that you think really needs to be addressed in some way? Well, uh, this is absolutely right. And the same thing happens with USB, right? If I've got a nano VNA here, if I plug it onto my USB socket, it comes up as a serial device. Yeah. And I've got to, I've got to now know the serial protocol to talk to it, to, <laughs> to, to command it to do things. I can't ask it, uh, what are you? What commands do you have? Tell me the structure of your, what, how do you think about the world? What, yeah. what, things, what things do you have access, what things do you have available to you? And what control settings do they have? You know, what, what are the parameters on those things? And oh, by the way, if something's connected on, on one of your ports, what is that? 
can you can you get can you get it to answer the same questions? So what we need is, and this is what I was talking about with radio blocks, is is having a thing where I can actually plug these blocks together, or the same thing with software-defined radio, when you have large uh, signal processing networks of of computers and and hardware devices all plugged together. What I want to be able to do is to say, uh, "Hello, who's out there?" and the first guy that I'm connected to answer me, and 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 I can say, "Okay, what are your ports?" Um, okay, now ask the same question on your ports. Tell me who's out there on the other side of that that second port. And and I want to discover what capabilities they've got next. And you know, all the way through to an antenna system, I want to know that that I've got an aldazimuth uh, rotator on a three on a three three meter dish, on the other side of a chain of signal processing that's five nodes away. Uh, and so this kind of um, network discovery, enumeration, capabilities discovery. In, in other words, what are all the configurable parameters? Uh, let, now let's configure them to a certain way. Okay, I want you to I want you to point at at, at Sirius, and I want you to to make a certain you know uh, capture on a certain frequency band, and I want to analyze it w- with an FFT. And I don't want to do that. I want you to do that because you've got the hardware to do a, a, a good FFT. So in other words, all the signal processing type stuff, these networks should be discoverable. And the software I'm using to do that shouldn't even need to know anything about radio astronomy. I was going to ask. So when you when you have Devices in the chain that don't understand the schema, they don't understand the request or the response sometimes even, especially when you have when you're talking about embedded devices, let's say something shipped last year, and then six months ago, we updated the schema to add, let's say it was even a compatible like forward compatible change to the schema to add new types, you know, the motor that moves up and down and things like that. How do you how do you prevent the devices themselves from treating this data like a bag of bytes, when it's something they don't no, because it's outside of the schema that they're aware of. Well, this is something I've tackled recently with a language that actually originally I developed um, 20 years ago called Aspect Definition Language. Uh, if you go to my GitHub and look at ADL, um, mm-hmm. there's a C-sharp and a Ruby implementation of it, and I want a Rust implementation of it too. But essentially, um, this is a language like, think of JSON, but it's got schema definition. It's got, In other words, it's got everything that XML and XSD has got in it in a language that's as simple as JSON. So it's got inheritance. It's got um, it's got contextual extension. It's got um, you can define the syntax of a value uh, of a new data type. So I can, for example, it, if it doesn't know about dates in in my preferred syntax, I can define a new syntax for dates, and now I can type dates into my in as a value, and it'll be parsed correctly. It's an interesting it language. Parsed, but can the device do anything with that? Because if if you what? haven't written any procedural code that understands what to do with dates, just because it can understand that is a date. Can it do anything other than pass that information on, or no? But, it, the- but, it can, but it can pass it on to someone that does understand it. That's fair. Uh, and if it's um, similar to, but a refinement of, in other words, if it's the same syntax as something else, or if it's the same structure as something else, but has additional things I don't understand, then I can still do things with bits I do understand. And 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 that's what XML. Right? That's what the X was in XML was the intention of being able to have an extensible language. Very few systems actually make use of the extensibility of XML, but you know, namespaces makes that possible. Well, aspect definition language has the same kind of idea, but it's all done enormously lexically, much more simply than anything else. You know, it's it's um, it's free form, like in the way JSON is, so it doesn't have the kind of YAML white space indent issues that YAML and Python have, but it's it's uh, it's more powerful than any of them. And, and it does support schema definition as well as value definition. And there's a continuity there. It's a single syntax. So it's a, it's a very interesting language. I, I want to do more with it. 
Very cool. Yeah, I, it, it sounds very. So the reason that I asked the specific questions that I asked in the in the last call that I had um, was talking also about things like how do you version protocol formats and things like that, because one of the projects that I'm working on is for distributed embedded systems. So uh, I'm working on a protocol called the Anacro protocol, and I'm using it for kind of two things right now. One is for as a as a network protocol for embedded devices. So when you have low power devices that need to talk to each other and kind of one of the keystone applications of that that I'm working on as a hobby right now is as a, a microcontroller based computer architecture. So the idea is that you have the idea is to achieve something on the order of magnitude of, let's say, an old 286 PC where you have cards and expansion ports and things like that. But uh, uh, someone who's a, at least a, a suitably familiar embedded developer could build every component of the system. So whether that's the arbitrator or north bridge of the system that's proxying messages and memory access or the sound card or the main CPU and things like that, that they have some way to speak to each other. And one of the things that I've been able to do is I've, I've written essentially the network protocol for that. But the, the application layer on top of that is something that I'm still struggling with because if I want people to be able to say, you know, I've built this sound card and I've either shipped the software or you can buy one of these sound cards and plug it into your computer that you have at home. How do you work with multiple versions of a protocol? Let's say you have yeah. the original version, which is just a raw stream of samples or something like that. And how do I maybe add a version that supports compression? Or how do I add a version that supports lossless or lossy formats and things like that of, okay, so the, the arbitrator in the middle probably doesn't really need to understand anything that it's passing along. But let's say I have a CPU that's capable of speaking version one, two, and three of the protocol. And then we have a sound card that's capable of speaking version three, four, five of the protocol. How do they discover each other's capabilities and negotiate a version of the protocol that they both speak and then decide what they're able to do with this, especially once you have, uh, yeah, th that's definitely one of those challenges that I'm, I don't think that there's yeah. a universe, well, I'm not sure if there's a universal answer for it, but I'd love to, you know, hear your thoughts on, on that. No, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, some protocols deal with this by marking extensions. So I can see that you have, you support some extension. And, and the extension may be marked as being um, critical or not critical. That is to say, if you don't understand this, then you don't understand me. Yeah, exactly. uh, all bets are off. Uh, or if you don't understand this, just pass it through and it'll be okay. If you don't understand this, just uh, just don't damage it and, and it all will be well. You know, that's kind of one approach. But um, ultimately, this is a um, this is a modeling problem, right? It, yeah. it, it, it comes down to the structure of our world. The possible structures of our world have changed. Yeah. Um, our interpretation of some old things is now different from what it was. Has that changed in a way that makes previous likely behaviors incorrect? Or are those behaviors still correct in as far as they match? Um, and that's where the critical, non-critical thing comes in, I guess. Yeah. But um, it, it, look, it's a hard problem. You know, it's, sure. it's not a problem. It's not a problem there's a single answer to, but there are approaches to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think critical versus non-critical is definitely one of those things that I was I was looking at. I mean, it basically becomes a constraint solving problem, whether you're talking about semver resolution or or capability resolution and things like that. There's there's some kind of constraint solving where you say, well, I can do this, but I can't do this. And like you said, at some point, even if you've modeled it, like being able to model it is one big boost. But then, you know, there are going to be constraints that can't be met. If you say, well, you only speak three, four, and five, and I only speak one and two. Sorry. And like you said, if we add the additional constraint of some of these are critical and some of these are non-critical, if, if it's only one of the non-critical ones, okay, we can keep moving. But if we if we can't, then, you know, sorry, we, we just won't talk to each other or I can only pass on your messages to something that maybe can uh, definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, look, it's the it's fish can't see water 
sort of problem, right? Yeah. But in, you know, in, in the example about asking people to tell you 10 things about the sea, if none of them told you that it was salty and you didn't know the sea was salty and, and you're a freshwater fish and then somebody tells you that, and then somebody tells you the sea is salty, well, everything changes. You've really yeah. got a completely different model. Uh, and, and the truth is that introduction of new critical extensions to something indicate that you got the model wrong to begin with. Ultimately, that's what, what it's saying is you should have thought of the possibility of that and, and not have made that mistake in, to begin with, such that it needed a new extension. Because what you've got now is a new model. Because you're, you're saying the old, the old way of thinking about that model, although we agreed on it at the time, that was always wrong. A critical well, extension does that. Facts, where you can have models that were correct at the time, like in my compression. So let's say we were in a land where, where lossless compression didn't, didn't exist yet. And, and so there was no understanding of that or modeling of that or, or things like that. I mean, there's definitely, I mean, even HTML and things like that, the, the, the facts have changed over time in that, yes, we may have had a correct model at the time, but as, as things change and things like that, I agree with you that, that it is a changing model, but is it, is it fair to say that it's a, the original model was wrong, even if it was comprehensive at the time, but you know, time moved on and the, the model is no well, longer. Well, no, 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 really, because if you adding lossless compression doesn't change the interpretation of the uncompressed stream. If, if adding the capability for lossless compression changed the interpretation of the uncompressed stream, that, that indicates you had the wrong interpretation to begin with. See what I'm trying to say? Adding lossless compression, uh, you don't need to understand loss, lossless compression to understand the uncompressed stream. You just need it yeah. to understand that particular lossless compression to know how to decompress it to get the uncompressed stream right. back. But if doing that changes the interpretation of the uncompressed stream, then you had an error in your original model. And that's what I mean by a critical extension. I, I might not be able to get the data because I don't know how to implement that that decompression. Yeah. But if the if if the interpretation of the data itself is fundamentally changed, that uh, by by reconstructing it through a different decompression algorithm, then your then your interpretation was always wrong. So I can understand. Uh, so that I have something that I don't like. I know that it is a thing that I cannot uh, understand, but I understand that I have a thing and I can pass it on because. I know that I don't understand it, but I'm not corrupted the message or, or messed it up in any way. Yeah, that's by right. Just looking at it. Yeah, that's right. That's fair. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we're about an hour in. It has been excellent talking to you. And I very much, I, I know you had a whole list of things that we wanted to talk about, but we got very focused on a couple of things, which I really enjoyed talking about, but I'll, I'll definitely have to have a, another chance to talk to you about more of the items on your list because there's definitely a lot of stuff with radios and embedded systems and things like that that we didn't get to but i'm glad that we did talk about language and a lot of the model thing things because those are definitely items that are on my mind right now so but i mean uh, they they overlap right vrt for vrt sure. 49 beta 49 is the is the standard for plugging sdr systems together it's a protocol but it doesn't give you discovery um so yeah. we need we need something like vrt 49 that gives you discovery and to do discovery, you need you need an idea of what a model is because you've got to discover the model of of some device. You have to um, say what so, I can do, what I am capable of, and then having yeah, you know, exactly. And what does that mean? and things like that. Yeah. And where does that capability fit in the scheme of things? You know, the scheme of things that I already understand. You know, this is this is a continuity, right? Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Everything's well, connected. I'm definitely interested in following up. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything, any specific project that you're working on, or? project that you'll be launching soon or anything like that anything you'd like to plug or for, want people to be looking at uh after they hear this well look i'm, I'm working on a couple of embedded systems I'm, I'm doing something for solar power monitoring it's the japanese uh air conditioners all use uh, home bus uh there doesn't seem to be an experimenters board for dealing with that so i'm i've built a, an esp32 board that gives you a wi-fi interface to home bus 
So that's uh, that's going to be pretty cool. That's just a. I've only been on that for three weeks, and the boards have been shipped from China already. So um, that should be fun. I've got uh, a couple of SDR projects in, in on the go, building a uh, polar modulator, which is a, a uh, very good at doing um, FSK and other other type things. It's a it's a novel implementation rather than using the standard IQ complex um, approach to SDR transmission. It's a um, it's a frequency and amplitude modulation, so you get polar coordinates okay. instead of um, complex coordinates. IQ, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, truthfully, this whole modeling thing is uh, it's a thing I've I, I stepped away from for a little while because I wasn't making traction with it, and I've, it's still unfinished business. I've got to get back to it, and and Rust is part of that, Haskell is part of that, TLA is part of that. Yeah, I want to make I want to make some of these modeling technologies real for software people like yourself that are building low-level systems in Rust. And myself, I'm happy working on a stereo microscope or, or with, you know, enterprise architecture and, and everywhere in between. And I've done the same. I, I, in fact, I've done both those things in the same, in the same job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a full-stack developer. Definitely. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time and talking to me. Um, I'll definitely have to schedule another chat with you to, to follow up on a couple more of those things, but thanks so much for your time and looking forward to talk to you soon. No worries. Lovely to meet you, James. Yeah. Great to meet you. Talk to you soon. Cheers.